It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, February 13th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. The California report follows a huge battle brewing between California's 400,000 fast food workers and the billion-dollar companies they work for. Then, the Inuit Circumpolar Conference watches with increased unease as military activity ramps up in the Arctic. More on today's National Native News. We have your local news and weather forecast before Sid Brown from the Sierra Gold Parks Foundation takes us for a walk in the park with updates on Western Nevada County's three state parks. Ever wonder about volunteering at your local state park? Stick around for details from Sid. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Low-income Californians will soon have food assistance to them slashed by more than $500 million. CalMatters' Jeannie Kwong has more about the end of one important pandemic-era program. The millions of people on food stamps in California have depended on a temporary boost in aid for nearly three years now. But the federal government is winding down the program. I spoke with one 69-year-old man in Citrus Heights near Sacramento whose food stamp allowance is going to drop from $281 a month to only $55. This is at a time when food prices have been soaring because of inflation, and his only other income is Social Security. March is the last month recipients like him will get the boost, and there's no immediate plan to backfill the loss. I heard from the state's Food Bank Association its members are already bracing for a hunger spike in April. That's CalMatters Jeannie Kwong. Let's turn to a big-money California political battle you're going to be hearing a lot about over the rest of this year and most of 2024. We'll start at the drive through line. Can I get an egg McMuffin meal, please? The number one? Uh, yeah, the number one. It's estimated that every week more than half of all Californians patronize some kind of fast food or fast casual restaurant, making it a multi-billion dollar industry. All right, your total at the first one, those eight seventy. Thank you. But in response to stories about worker abuse in the fast food industry, last year the state legislature passed and Governor Newsom signed into law the Fast Food Accountability and Standards Recovery Act. The FAST Act created a first-of-its-kind 10-person independent council to improve labor conditions in the fast food industry, including the power to raise wages up to $22 an hour, a living wage. So, story over, right? Well, no. You see, the fast food industry immediately struck back, with companies like In-N-Out and Chipotle spending millions of dollars to qualify a referendum for the November 2024 ballot. If the referendum passes, it would repeal the FAST Act. And until that vote happens more than 20 months from now, the act can't take effect. That has infuriated labor groups and fast food workers who are gearing up to fight the ballot measure, like at this recent demonstration in Los Angeles. Maishiko Ronquillo has worked in the fast food industry for the past 10 years. She says creating a council to improve pay and working conditions would be a sign of respect to the state's nearly 400,000 fast food workers, many of whom are immigrants and people of color. When you're hungry and you don't have time to eat, where do you go? Who do you depend on? Us, the fast food workers. That's, that's who you depend on. Ronquillo, who cares for an adult daughter with autism, says the FAST Act is necessary because of just how economically precarious the lives of fast food workers are. 
Every day I wake up, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pay all my bills. I don't know if I'm going to be able to eat for the whole month. I don't know. But I'm just, I'm, I'm just doing my best for me and my daughter, and we're just trying to make it. But the fast food industry says making sure California's FAST Act never gets enacted has become its top priority. It has been and remains the number one threat that we see, the number one issue that we see across the country. That's Jeff Hanscom, a vice president at the International Franchise Association, a trade group representing fast food franchise owners. Hanscom argues that California already has a high minimum wage and plenty of laws on the books to protect fast food workers without the FAST Act. He also says implementing it would hurt both businesses and California consumers as fast food restaurants close and prices rise. Hanscom says by as much as 20 percent. You're looking at less restaurants, less options, less jobs, higher cost of food, uh, all of these things to pay for the FAST Act, which in and of itself was a solution in search of a problem that never existed in the first place. Hanscom says the fast food industry is ready to spend whatever it takes to make sure the referendum targeting the FAST Act passes. But fast food workers argue labor violations and survival wages in their industry won't end until the FAST Act becomes a reality. We're not tired. We're tired of being discriminated, but we're not tired of fighting. So are we tired? No! They're demanding that the industry abandon the referendum and instead reach out to workers and the state to implement the FAST Act. Here's fast food worker Evelyn Barillas. We won this fair and square. You would like them just to implement the law that was passed in Sacramento? Yeah, that's what we would want, what's, what's fair. While the battle over the FAST Act is just getting started here in California, its passage has inspired other states. Legislators in Virginia and New York are considering bills to create their own fast food councils to improve the lives of fast food workers. Support for the California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, listening to Black Californians, a new study on how the healthcare system undermines their pursuit of good health, on the web at chcf.org lbca. Paint Care, now with 846 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at schmidtfutures.com. Finally, many of you saw the Super Bowl yesterday, so let's end on some California football history. Super Bowl I, then formerly called the AFL-NFL Championship Game, was held in L.A.'s Memorial Coliseum in January of 1967, with the Green Bay Packers and Kansas City Chiefs squaring off. Here's a clip. From the Coliseum in Los Angeles, with sunny skies, temperature in the 70s, and what a day. Thousands of people here in the stands, and there are millions of people on television, and everyone looking, and all with speculation, to see what kind of a game the Green Bay Packers are going to play today. Right? Right. right. I want you to be proud of your profession. It's a great profession. You be proud of this game, and you can do a great deal for football today. Great deal for all the players in the league and everything else. Go out there and play this ball game like I know you can play it. Let's go. Jim Taylor, the setbacks, with Dale wide to the left. That is Pitts' touchdown on the first play, going off his own left side.
Super Bowl One was the only Super Bowl game ever carried by two networks. You could buy a ticket for $12 or about 100 bucks in today's dollars, but more than 30,000 seats still went unsold for the game. And the halftime show was a way more homespun affair, featuring trumpeter Al Hurt and a drill team from Anaheim High School in Orange County. Unlike yesterday's game, the Chiefs lost Super Bowl One, 35 to 10. And that is the California Report. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. The day after Super Bowl 57, you're celebrating or lamenting, depending where your allegiance lies. However, National Native News hears from a different perspective altogether. The Native advocacy groups Not in Our Honor and Arizona to Rally Against Native Mascots held protests calling on the Kansas City football team to change their name. Details ahead on National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. It began with a Chinese surveillance balloon taken out by a U.S. fighter jet earlier this month. Since then, there have been three smaller flying objects shot down over Alaska, Canada, and Michigan. All of that has Alaska lawmaker Senator Donnie Olson on edge. He was in a floor session Friday when he got word that an unidentified object was shot down near the Canadian border, a region that's home to Inupiat people and part of his district. Olson, a pilot, says the dangers are very real. So it's very concerning that you have something up there that's flying along or suspended in the air without a, a uh, air traffic control clearance. Uh, if you couldn't see it because of clouds or if it was nighttime, there could very easily be a collision. Olson worries the North Slope's remoteness and sparse population will make it more difficult to protect itself from foreign aggression. Over the years, the Inuit Circumpolar Council has watched increased military activity in the Arctic with a nervous eye. Jimmy Stotts, who recently retired as president of Alaska's ICC, is concerned the spy balloon and flying objects could be a distraction from a larger threat to the Arctic. Some of these conflicts elsewhere spilling over and into the Arctic. I'm worried about that. Relationships, particularly over there in Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries and Russia, how things there could pretty easily, I think, go sideways. Stott says climate change, which has opened waters to navigation, has increased tensions in the Arctic and the potential for conflict. The Central American country of Guatemala is entering an election this year. Recently, protests were held as Maya candidate Thelma Cabrera and her running mate, a well-known human rights activist, were disqualified after being accused of campaigning on social media before the official start date. Maria Martin reports. Hundreds of supporters of the Maya mom candidate Thelma Cabrera of the People's Liberation Movement took to the streets in downtown Guatemala City. Their slogans asked the country's highest electoral authority, the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, to reinstate Cabrera and her running mate, former human rights ombudsman Jordan Rodas, on the ballot for the June 25th election. During the last elections in 2019, Cabrera came in a strong fourth place, winning 10% of the vote. Surprising in this country where the last indigenous presidential candidate, Nobel Peace Laureate Rigoberta Menchu, only garnered the support of 3% of Guatemalan voters. This time around, Thelma Cabrera and her running mate Rodas were expected to gain the reform vote for change in Guatemala, where most of the 30-odd parties represent the old guard, the military, and what's known as the Pact of the Corrupt. 
Thelma Cabrera says she and Rodas plan to challenge their party's disqualification in court. For National Native News, I'm Maria Martin. On Sunday, demonstrators gathered in Glendale, Arizona, as the Kansas City football team played in the Super Bowl. They marched to the stadium where the game was held with signs calling on the team to change its name. People traveled from the greater Kansas City area for the protest, while others were from the Phoenix metropolitan area, like Cher Thomas from the Gila River Indian community, a tribe that was one of the official partners of the Super Bowl. Thomas says she wanted to use her voice to take a stand. There's something that can be said, I'm going to say it. If there's something that can be done, I'm going to do it. If there's something that can be maneuvered, worked out, figured out, I believe in doing what I can with what I have. The Native advocacy groups Not In Our Honor and Arizona to Rally Against Native Mascots hosted the protest and other events, including a film screening and discussion about the fight against Indian mascots. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Support from the Self-Governance Communication and Education Tribal Consortium presenting the 2023 Tribal Self-Governance Conference at the River Spirit Resort starting June 26th. Early bird registration closes February 25th at tribalselfgov.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. This Valentine's Day, Nevada County Connects is offering free fares on all routes. The transportation service will be operating normal schedules and times, but no fees will be charged. And in other Valentine's Day-related news, Peace Lutheran Church on West Main Street in Grass Valley is holding a special Valentine luncheon on Tuesday starting at noon. Peace Lutheran says, come and be your own Valentine. Nevada County's Cold Weather Shelter will open at 4.30 p.m. on Tuesday, February 14th. The shelter accepts guests until 8 p.m. and will close at 7.30 a.m. Wednesday morning. The Cold Weather Shelter is located at the Nevada City Veterans Hall at 415 North Pine Street in Nevada City. Turning our attention to your local weather forecast from the National Weather Service. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 27 degrees. Tuesday, a 20% chance of snow showers between 1 and 2 p.m., increasing clouds with a high near 42. Tuesday could be windy with gusts up to 21 miles per hour. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight increasing clouds with a low around 9 degrees. Tuesday, a 40% chance of snow mainly between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., partly sunny with a high near 25 degrees, little or no snow accumulation is expected. The National Weather Service has issued a special weather statement. Gusty winds, snow showers, and severely colder temperatures sweep through the Truckee Tahoe region today through Tuesday. A very cold winter system will arrive late today, reminding us we're still in the middle of winter. Strong winds may impact ground and air travel. Snow showers will develop tonight into Tuesday, primarily for areas near and south of I-80 in the Sierra and western Nevada. A secondary round of snow will develop in the Sierra and Northeast California. 
be prepared. After a relatively warm day today, Tuesday will be a shock to the system. Widespread teen and single-digit lows can be expected with colder valleys dipping below zero. Bundle up Tuesday and Wednesday and be sure to protect vulnerable populations as well as pets. The National Weather Service also recommends allowing extra time for your Tuesday morning commute, especially if you live near or south of I-80. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 39. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 54 degrees. The National Weather Service has issued a wind advisory for the Sacramento-Woodland area, in effect from 7 p.m. this evening to 8 a.m. Tuesday. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Coming up, Sid Brown brings us along for the latest edition of A Walk in the Park. She's got the details on upcoming open houses at each of Western Nevada County's three state parks. Interested in becoming a volunteer at your local state park? Keep listening to find out all the details you'll need to know. There's so much going on here early in 2023. You know, we had a great start to weather-wise to our region, and now we're experiencing a little beautiful break in the weather. The last time I think I talked about winter walking on the trails, having good gear. Um, I will say the trails at Empire Mine, at South Yuba, and at Malakoff are in really nice shape. Yes, we had a lot of rain and there is some mud, but the trails have been well maintained. Wherever there has been tree fall, they've been cleared. So there's really no reason not to be out on the trails if you are able. You know, at Empire, there's been a great amount of undergrowth clearing and forestry management to reduce concerns over wildfire. And as that forest gets cleared out and those accumulated burn piles have been consumed, it's just lovely to see through the forest and be able to get better views of what's happening in the vegetation story outside of the historic area of Empire Mine. You know, the interior is beautifully maintained with gardeners and groundspeople but the outside of the historic core at Empire Mine has just got lots and lots of trails and no barrier. Uh, You can hike there, you know, sunrise to sunset. If you want to go inside the historic core at Empire Mine, there is a $5 fee unless you're part of the Adventure Pass program. And that's a special program for fourth graders and their families. And that's a statewide program, and Empire Mine is one of 19 historic parks statewide participating in that. And so we can give you information about how to get that Adventure Pass It is completely free, but it does take a little bit of pre-planning. So check our website or Empire Mine Park website for information on how to get that Adventure Pass if you're a fourth grader or a family of a fourth grader. We are having um, open houses simultaneously at Empire Mine, Malakoff Diggins, and the Bridgeport area of the South Yuba River State Park on February 25th. That's a Saturday, and the open house is from 11 to 3. And on those days, we are welcoming 
um, folks of the community who may be interested in getting a little bit more involved in one of those three state parks or maybe even all three. So the open houses are happening at each of the parks and there will be people available to talk to about what the volunteer opportunities are, requirements, just basic information of how our community non-paid members can be part of what's happening at those parks. And then after the 25th of February, after these open houses, there will be, for those who think, hmm, volunteering at state parks might be just up my alley, there will be um, special uh, training for new volunteers, and that will be hosted at Empire Mine on March, oh, I think it's March 3rd and 4th. One of those days is required, and I think it's basically a, a 9 or a 10 to 3 program for new volunteers. And this information will be available on our website, Sierra Gold Parks Foundation, Empire Mine State Stork Park, and I think KVMR is going to share that information as well. So volunteers, we are really looking forward to invigorating our volunteer corps. We have some wonderful volunteers who are very experienced, have been doing it for years, but as in any um, community and nonprofit uh, enterprise uh, volunteers are the lifeblood and so we really would like to encourage people to consider volunteering at our state parks it's very gratifying and then um, if you're not interested in volunteering not in a position to do that you might be interested in this next little tidbit and that is um, state parks is hiring park aides this is a seasonal position and I believe there are positions at each of the three state parks, down at South Yuba, at Malakoff, and at Empire. And the final filing date for this non-tested position is February 27th of 2023. There is an online application process, and that can be done through your local library if you don't have access to a computer or, or, or Internet. And um, there's information on those positions. It's a paid seasonal position. You can contact Ryan Randar. He's the hiring ranger at 530-478-8874. And for the volunteer, I'll just give you a, a name also to contact, and this will be on our websites. But the volunteer open houses and training contact is Jean, J-E-A-N, Ryan. R-H-Y-N-E, and she's at 530-273-7714. Well, um, I do want to encourage folks to to visit these parks, visit them year-round. We are so lucky to have them accessible in every kind of weather, in every season, in every month. And right now, the birds are starting to come out, the flowers are starting to bloom, and boy, the mushroom activity has been quite remarkable. I always tell people, you know, I love to get out and hike and, you know, get the distance under my boots, but I also like to stop and listen and look up, see what's making that noise. 
Okay, well, uh, remember, please, leave no trace when you visit our parks. Be conscious of other people, and if you're walking with a dog, please remember always to keep your dog on a leash at our parks. I really appreciate that, as do the other park visitors. It's good for the environment, and it's good for the dogs. And let's be watching for wildflowers. We're going to be having wildflower walks at Bridgeport starting in early March. And I'll be talking more about the guided tours that will be happening there at our next talk. But that's it for now. See you on the trails. That's our newscast for Monday, February 13th, 2023. You can listen to an extended version of A Walk in the Park on our webpage, kvmr.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sid Brown sits on the board of the Sierra Gold Parks Foundation and joins us once a month with news and updates from Western Nevada County's three state parks. Learn more at sierragoldparksfoundation.org. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties and San Francisco to Lake Tahoe, milkmancompany.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendonca. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.